This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The billionaire boss of Twitter flew in this week to update the Prime Minister on the Christchurch call. But shortly before that, his own account was hijacked by hackers who posted racist and extremist stuff on it. Now, if Jack Dorsey can't keep his own account safe from that sort of stuff, is it time to start blocking online platforms when we find it on them here in New Zealand? Well, Internet New Zealand tells us more blocking might actually do more harm than good. You could shut down Facebook to make sure they're not also seeing harmful content, but what are you also stopping Mm. them from doing? Also, we look at how the media have embraced Māori Language Week, but what about all the other weeks in the year? But before all that... Who knew what and when? Those are questions Labour's leaders have been asked a lot this past week after serious allegations against a party staffer were aired again in the media this past week. But the media's response has also come under fire. Gone this past lunchtime, Labour President Nigel Haworth. His departure is the latest twist in the ongoing controversy over the party's handling of allegations against a Labour staffer. The Prime Minister accepted his resignation after viewing correspondence that complainants wrote to the party several months ago. That was Lisa Owen opening RNZ's checkpoint on Wednesday with the old gone-by-lunchtime line, which is de rigueur now when any political figure steps down before, say, mid-afternoon. And by early evening on News Hub at 6, political editor Tova O'Brien said that the whole sorry saga had gone global and was now taking the gloss off Labour's leader. Me too must become we too, which Jacinda Ardern said during her speech at the United Nations last year, and the PM is back at the UN later this month. The story will follow her there. It's being covered by the likes of the UK's Guardian newspaper, the Washington Post, Japan Today. The Prime Minister's international reputation is souring. It was on Monday that this story burst back into the headlines when the spin-off published a dense account of a young Labour volunteer detailing a sexual assault she alleges was committed by a person the spin-off described as an influential Labour staffer. And in the PM's regular weekly interview for Morning Report on RNZ National, she told Susie Ferguson that was news to her. Uh, first I've seen the complaints of that nature was when I read them. Which was when? Uh, when I saw them in the spin-off. But earlier that day on News Talk ZB, Mike Hosking harked back to an earlier interview with the Prime Minister on the 6th of August. How many people have quit your party as a result of this investigation into the bloke who may or may not have um, sexually assaulted some of them? I'm going to be pretty careful answering that question, Mike, because this is... Um, uh, uh, inquiry and work is still underway and it is um, a party matter. And Jacinda Ardern was careful answering that question. She didn't say anything that indicated that she might have been aware of any sexual assault allegations. On Wednesday morning, Mike Hosking put that to Labour's Stuart Nash. Just individually on the 6th of August, I told her that it involved sexual allegations and that was on this programme and then she stumped up Monday in front of the nation and said that it was the first time she'd heard this week, which simply isn't true. Well, Mike, she, you know, Jacinda is only as good as the information she gets from her officials. Stuart Nash went on to tell Mike Hosking, with the greatest respect, Jacinda Ardern would believe what her officials told her and not what he said to her on Newstalk ZB six weeks ago. But elsewhere on ZB, this was a smoking gun for drive host Heather Duplessy-Allen. This is what we want to ask her. When did she know that the allegations against a staffer in her office were of an alleged sex crime? And Heather Duplessy-Allen wound up her thought piece on Tuesday with this. It's becoming increasingly hard to believe Jacinda Ardern's version of events. And possibly this is the first time that we've had reason to question Jacinda Ardern's honesty. 
But there was no possibly on the ZB's website version of that. We must question the PM's honesty over Labour sexual assault allegations, read the headline on that. Her reasoning was that the allegations of a sexual nature had been aired in several news reports in recent weeks, so the first I've heard explanation on Monday from the Prime Minister wouldn't wash. And it certainly didn't for pundit and lobbyist Matthew Hooton when he appeared on the opinion slot The Huddle later in that hour on News Talk ZB. If she does not consume any other media other than the spin-off where her sort of grey Lynn point shed lovey friends operate, then that would be interesting to know, but I simply don't believe it. Now, that was an odd spray at the spin-off, given that that was the outlet which broke the story which has deepened the trouble for Jacinda Ardern and her party, and it followed up Monday's scoop with an editorial by the senior writer who wrote the story, the site's editor, and the managing editor of the whole business under this stark headline. Labour has failed vulnerable young members for a second time. There must be consequences. A media outlet which was beholden to the Prime Minister or her party would have sheeted the blame home to the alleged offender, you'd think, but it didn't. Back on News Talk ZB, Matthew Hooton then had a far wider swing at the media when prompted by Heather Duplessy-Allen like this. Matthew, it makes you wonder if there are some, if there are some segments of the media who don't want to believe that this is true of the Labour Party and of this Prime Minister, and it's a matter that you've raised before. Well, it's been covered well on News Talk ZB, obviously, and to a certain extent on the New Zealand Herald. I think they know it's true. I think they're covering it up. I think the left-wing daily media, which is the majority of the media, particularly in the state-owned networks, have a vested interest in the re-election of this ridiculous government, and so they have deliberately made a decision not to report this matter because they are in the pocket of the Labour Party and the Adirne yeah, cult. Now, as Heather Duplessy-Allen pointed out there, that's a concern that Matthew Hooton has raised before. On the same slot, on the same show, on the same network, as it turns out. Here's Matthew Hooton on the drive show's huddle on the 12th of August. As I said, if this was a national government and there was an alleged rapist working for John Key in John Key's office, can you imagine what the Labour opposition, what Jacinda Ardern would have said? I think... Because this guy is red... Because he's a Labour Party person, they don't care that he's an administrator. Last Tuesday, Matthew Hooton's fellow huddler and lobbyist-turned-pundit, Trish Shearson, also wondered whether the story had been underplayed by the media. This story has really bubbled along quietly and, and hasn't really had a huge amount of attention. When you put it up against the story that was around Russell McVeigh over a year ago, mm. which was weeks of front page headline, mm. that tells me something quite interesting, actually. But while she left it at interesting, Matthew Hooton picked up the ball and ran with it again like this. The media, the left-wing daily media, was quite happy to take on Russell McVeigh. I'll take your point. But they will not attack the Adern cult because they are left. We all know who this person, this alleged offender is in this room. And many, most people in Wellington do. Yeah. He is a very well-connected, highly-ranked Labour Party person. He is part of the woke, liberal, left-wing Adern cult. That is why he has been protected by Adern. That is why she is prepared to say things to the media which cannot possibly be true in order to defend him, uh, and that is why large elements of the Wellington left-wing media in that press gallery have defended him, because they have been out partying with this guy okay. in Courtney Place. They like Don't him. He is their friend. Matthew Hooton wound up on News Talk ZB's huddle by predicting that Nigel Harworth would go the next day, 
and he did, but also he said the media would continue to cover up Jacinda Ardern's role and responsibility. But the following day, there was little sign of the parliamentary press gallery being reluctant to report the story elsewhere or actually helping Labour's leaders cover anything up. For instance, the Stuff Papers carried an editorial reminding Jacinda Ardern of these words of hers from three years ago. These conversations stop the moment there's a resignation. It's the PR quick fix, usher the source of the controversy away. But apologies, followed by silence, change nothing. And change is what we need. True words then and now, said Stuff sternly. Later, News Hub's Tova O'Brien was in the PM's face in Parliament and firing questions at the Finance Minister on the 6pm bulletin. I'm going to respect the privacy of the young people involved in this situation. I'm simply not going to go on. Did you pass Grant Robertson ever raise sexual assault allegations with you, the fact that he knew? Again, the party has maintained the same position. Those Robertson lied into it have maintained the same position. I'm comfortable with what I've done in this process. The next day, Morning Report made it clear that the party president falling on his sword didn't close the story down at all. Thursday, September the 12th, top stories this morning. The focus now on the Prime Minister as scrutiny of Labour's handling of sexual assault complaints intensifies. A resignation tends to diffuse things, but that doesn't look like there's going to be any let-up for the Prime Minister. No, it has cauterised the wound, I suppose, on the party side. And remember that the party had been the main body in the story dealing with the allegations and Nigel Harworth was the person leading those investigations. Um, It obviously became very apparent. Morning Report and other media also covered Nationals' Paula Bennett using parliamentary privilege the day before to name Labour staffers she said knew all about the sexual assault allegations long ago. And at midday, TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay was live on air with this prediction. There are still a lot of unanswered questions around all of this about who knew what and when. It's a really sensitive issue. There's going to be more developments, I'm sure, later on this afternoon, and we'll keep you updated on those. And she wasn't wrong. TVNZ reported that there had been a complaint against the alleged offender to his employer, the Parliamentary Service. The man at the centre of the storm then resigned on Thursday afternoon. Meanwhile, the entire front page of the Dominion Post was filled by Stuff senior reporter Andrea Vance telling readers this about the resignation of the Labour Party president. It's political management 101. Feed the media a scalp and they will move on. And Andrea Vance also heaped responsibility for what she called the betrayed faith of young Labour members onto Jacinda Ardern. On Friday morning, RNZ's Morning Report spoke to one of the complainants and summed up the story this way. Where are we now on Friday? We end the week still with this whole thing pretty much a mess. We saw on Monday the story on the spin-off um, detailing a first-hand account of one of the alleged assaults and that really set things going politically. And on the question of who knew what and when, Radio New Zealand political editor Jane Patterson said this. I think the best way to describe what I've been told in terms of um, their, their perspective or the perspective of some of those people involved was that there had been lots of rumours, there had been lots of stories and rumours um, going around and and some of them were about this particular individual, others just sort of general talk about stuff and they are coming back to the word complaint as opposed to allegations, their language is very careful around that. And that distinction between the first-hand details of the complaint and chatter around Wellington and reports and claims in the media is clearly the key one as far as Labour's leaders are concerned. But at the same time on News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking Breakfast, pundit Matthew Hooten saw it very differently. 
he was asked about this by you, I think, on the 6th of August. The New Zealand Herald uh, has reported more than a month ago that these were serious allegations, up to and including rape. I was on TVNZ Breakfast uh, more than a month ago with John Campbell, aligned really to the left, and, and we talked about allegations up to and including rape. Now, when I make a typo, when I get a figure wrong in a New Zealand Herald column, uh, if I say the number of state houses, if I get that number wrong, Phil Twyford's office is on the line here at Newstalk ZB or at the New Zealand Herald within minutes demanding a correction. You're not telling me that the Beehive didn't know absolutely what was being alleged. Earlier in the week, as we heard, Matthew Hooten was on Newstalk ZB saying that our political reporters had steered clear of the story in recent weeks, partly because of bias. But on Newstalk ZB on Friday morning, he was saying there had been so much about it in the media that the Prime Minister couldn't possibly have not known all about it until last Monday. What she is telling us is she does not consume any media in this country, yeah. nor does anyone in her circle. She does not watch TVNZ. She does not listen to News Talk ZB. She does not listen to you or engage mentally in the conversation she has with you. She doesn't read the New Zealand Herald. We're meant to believe that the only media she consumes is the woke Graylin liberal website, The Spin-Off. Now, it was The Spin-Off, of course, which was the outlet which broke the story back open last Monday, sparking all the who-knew-what-and-when questions and why was so little done. And with a QC now hired by Labour, who'll be reporting back within weeks, those questions and the story will not go away. And the Prime Minister has clearly been hung on a hook for this by the media and not allowed to wriggle off it, as some pundits and presenters have claimed this past week. meeting between Jacinda Ardern and the chief executive of Twitter has been described as hugely significant. The Prime Minister will talk with Jack Dorsey today about eliminating extremist content online. That was News Hub's Amanda Gillies on Monday morning before the billionaire boss of Twitter dropped in on the Prime Minister in Wellington for their first catch-up since the pair first met in Paris back in May. That was to reach agreement on the Christchurch Call, the voluntary framework committing tech companies and governments to prevent the upload of terrorist content online. But that's easier said than done. Jack Dorsey found that out himself just a fortnight ago when his own Twitter account was among many hijacked by hackers called The Chuckle Squad, who tweeted racial slurs, anti-Semitic messages and at least one bit of Holocaust denial from Jack Dorsey's account. Julia Borston with the details. Julia. Sarah, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's Twitter feed, at Jack, appears to have been hacked with about a dozen or so offensive and racist tweets sent out from that account in the last half hour. Many of those tweets do seem to be disappearing right now. Now, Twitter's PR chief saying, quote, yes, Jack's account was compromised. We're working on it and investigating what happened. Oh, dear. Well, his flying visit to New Zealand went a little better, at least according to his own Twitter account. Kind folks and a beautiful environment was what he found here, he told his Twitter followers. But we'll have to take Jack Dorsey's word for that. Requests for interviews from the New Zealand media on the same platform went unanswered. Now, that same morning, tech commentator Paul Brislin told News Talk ZB the meeting with Twitter's chief executive was second best, and in any case, Twitter wasn't really the problem platform. Uh, it doesn't quite get into the same realms of promoting content, getting paid to share vile and extremist content in quite the same way that Facebook does, for example. Uh, and Facebook is, uh, is the real problem here. And that was certainly what the editor of Newsroom Pro, Bernard Hickey, reckoned on the panel on RNZ National that day. 
I actually think we should um, launch a class action against Facebook. Social media like this has, has again, weaponized messages, which are clearly not consistent with science, and has allowed people to share this information, huge amounts of it, regularly, to the point where now there are a bunch of people who, you know, don't believe the scientists or the doctors, and instead believe a bunch of conspiracy theorists. And, I mean, why, for example, does Facebook allow these messages to be on its platform? They should be stripped out. They're very good at stripping out copyrighted material. Why not strip out things that are clearly not consistent with the science? Suing Facebook for spreading misinformation in New Zealand would be a legal long shot, you'd think, defended by a fairly formidable team of lawyers if it ever did get to court. But other blunt ways of making sure extreme stuff doesn't end up on our social media feeds and on our screens here in New Zealand are being pondered right now. Soon after the March the 15th attack in Christchurch, four of New Zealand's biggest internet service providers took the unprecedented step of jointly blocking a number of websites which had published or circulated the gunman's video and so-called manifesto. The New Zealand Telecommunications Forum Chief Executive Jeff Thorne said at that time this was absolutely necessary and the government applauded him for it. Indeed, at the time, it even asked the ISPs nicely to extend that blocking until after the memorial service held a week after the atrocity. But what wasn't reported much at the time were concerns about this. Legitimate use of the internet could be curbed by such blocking and it could also set a precedent whereby the bosses of internet service providers could block any contentious content during a crisis and last month this happened. A technology commentator says Spark is pushing the envelope with its decision to block the controversial online message board 8chan. Three recent mass murders, including the Christchurch mosque attacks, have been announced on the site. Well, that tech commentator was also Paul Brislin, who told RNZ that this was a bit like telecom of old deciding which phone calls you can and can't make. In the ideal world, we would have a nationwide standard and this would be applicable. You could appeal, there'd be a process. None of that's in place at the moment. We're relying on Spark and the other ISPs to do the right thing. Now at that time, Spark itself actually agreed with that. In Australia, the government tackled these issues head-on soon after the 15th of March. It passed strong laws in the run-up to the recent federal election to penalise social media sites which host extremist content. And this week, internet service providers there felt the heavy hand of the law again when they were ordered to block websites hosting video of the Christchurch mosque attacks. Australia's e-safety commissioner issued orders blocking eight sites, including 8chan, and Australia's communications minister and the Communications Alliance, which represents internet service providers in Australia, both welcomed that move. So, should New Zealand now follow suit? Well, this week, Umbrella Group Internet New Zealand warned that more online blocking could actually damage the infrastructure of the internet as well as disrupting legitimate use of it by Kiwis. In a paper called To Block or Not to Block, the non-profit organisation, which campaigns for an open, secure internet for New Zealand, said that blocking dodgy sites and services might even actually make the problem worse. It encourages reckless behaviour and circumvention and with regards to the Christchurch call may incite blowback from extremists who believe they're owed a platform. But if even the billionaire boss of Twitter can't keep racist stuff off his own Twitter account after signing up to the Christchurch call, don't we need the power to filter out bad stuff online when we find it here in New Zealand, like the telcos did straight after the atrocity on the 15th of March? I asked Internet NZ's chief executive Jordan Carter, who chaired the Christchurch call conference in Paris back in May, and its policy adviser Nicola Brown, the author of the paper released this week, to block or not to block. 
I think when ISPs were coming up with their policies around how they deal with internet traffic, no one was thinking of the use case that they were faced with on March 15th. And I think New Zealand as a country had never considered uh, what kind of response would be required. And I think we all understood that. So because it was an unprecedented situation and the harm was so extreme, um, we did applaud them as a country and Internet NZ supported them in that move. Um, But what I would like to see is that we're now understanding the harms that could be caused and creating robust, transparent, accountable policies so that if this happens again, they have a roadmap. Everyone wanted to do what they could, right, in that situation, and we were not going to criticise anyone for doing that, even if in any other circumstance we could pretty much imagine, we probably would have. But what then is the harm? If it's clearly objectionable material, I mean material that was literally deemed objectionable, illegal to to share and to copy afterwards, what then is the harm that you're talking about? Well, the harm in this case was the idea of ISPs making the decision on their own, right? So you've got a bunch of people whose job is to sell connectivity to the public, making editorial decisions about what people can see on the internet. And so that's why we're saying it's a longer-term framework where we don't want to see ISPs chief executives getting together, feeling really upset about something, going, damn it, we're going to block this as well. Because it may be something a lot of people felt is actually perfectly fine for New Zealanders to see. think through the counterfactual. If those people had sat around um, in the room and blocked Facebook, imagine the the impact on the country. On that day, they may have been applauded by New Zealanders for doing that as an emergency measure, though. Because that would say New Zealand exercising some form of sovereignty over an international digital beast, uh, transnational beast that we can't control. I disagree. I think the parents whose children were in lockdown, who might only use Facebook to communicate with them, might be really upset by that decision. At the time, I did have a look around online forums because there was some discussion among uh, tech people uh, who knew about the decision and how it was made, saying there were nine or ten sites. There was the 8chan and 4chan, which which we know about. There was, for example, one that was a a hedge fund tracking website where somehow it had become a forum for this stuff. I think if you're talking about nine websites, that's not a very big net, and I believe they were all non-compliant. And so you've got a website like uh, like a platform like Facebook or YouTube. You couldn't say that they were non-compliant about video removal because they were working as hard and as fast as they possibly could with the technology they had. Even though they were failing, you couldn't say that they were being non-compliant. A website like 8chan that was going out of its way to tease New Zealand police about how it was protecting its users and would continue to celebrate the hosting of the video and the manifesto on their platform, um, to me has shown that it, it, it is not concerned about enabling its users to use the sites. All of the things that get set in the way can be relatively easily overcome by people with some skill. So that's where you come back, and the point of this paper is, what's the problem you're trying to solve, and what are the impacts of doing so? And the, the really ugly truth is, the internet was designed to prevent effective central control of content. And so that's why part of this is, Let's, we're, I'm really pleased New Zealand didn't follow in Australia's footsteps of jumping into a really extreme statutory response. It's great that we're having a really considered and thoughtful discussion about this. And the test will come when there is public pressure to say, no, just sort it out, mate. Just block it. I mean, the report, to quote from it here, says, um, restricting content at the infrastructure level is ineffective and causes collateral damage to people, processes, and core internet infrastructure. How would it damage core internet infrastructure. We talk about how the internet routes traffic, so it can be blocking a domain name, which then means, like, if you block facebook.com, 
every service that is delivered over Facebook.com no longer works. If you look at an IP address, you could be accidentally wiping out an entire website host's business. That's the kind of damage we're talking about, is that a lot of these solutions are really blunt tools. That damage can actually be routed around with not, mm. you don't require a lot of technical skill to do it. So you'll have some people who are still accessing the internet as usual and others who are completely halted because they don't have the digital literacy to um, evade the methods being used. Because mm, it also says in the report here that to do so encourages reckless behaviour and circumvention uh, and with regards to the Christchurch call might actually incite blowback from extremists who believe they are owed a platform. Is that basically a, a longer way of saying you don't want to drive this underground? You see a lot of it in America where Twitter is afraid to um, kick off certain people with really extreme white nationalist views because they believe that they'll actually have to capture um, politicians in that same sweep. Um, and I think if you start blocking some content, you have to decide where that line is. And there are people, there are zealous people who will defend their right to these platforms as though it's a right. I think the response that we probably want as a country is to say, let's get as few people to see this as possible. For the people who are going to try and get around that anyway, do we want them to do that in a way that we know about and can monitor? Or do we want them to do that in a way that we don't know about and can't monitor? If we do have an ongoing block of 8chan and 4chan, and then you know the people who want to access that material will do it through different ways. That might be harder for law enforcement to track, might be harder for intelligence agencies to look at. Or do we actually want to funnel these sorts of people into these dark corners? I cannot think of a use case that isn't this exact horrific thing that happened where we should want the government to have a carte blanche ability to block any site it sees fit in a crisis. Because many of those crises, people would rely on being able to use the internet to communicate with loved ones, to find out what's happening. Um, I'm sure Facebook and Twitter were being used to communicate with family and friends during the Christchurch attacks to make sure that people were safe, um, to tell people where not to go. You could shut down Facebook to make sure they're not also seeing harmful content. But what are you also stopping them from doing? The sad reality is that in the current world, there are people out there who are using social media to manipulate and undermine societies like ours. We're not immune to those things. Well, uh, with that in mind, one thing that was done was the Christchurch call um, to Paris, uh, where world leaders, Jacinda Ardern, tech company bosses, uh, all there. I mean, you yourself were there in Paris. This week, the head of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, has been in the country, met with Mm -hmm. the Prime Minister. Is that significant? A year ago, this wouldn't be happening. It is, I think, a credit to the leadership of the tech companies that they've realised that the status quo of their approach doesn't work and that they're going to come and talk to New Zealand about that. Um, And I don't know whether other companies' leaders have been or are planning to come. Who knows? There's this check-in about the Christchurch call um, coming up in Paris and in New York in a couple of weeks. But the the key thing there is that as companies and governments said, this terrorist and violent extremist content shouldn't be on these platforms. And I agree with that. And they had never made a commitment to do something about it before. So in all of the discussion about the, the Christchurch call stuff, that's what I first come back to. This is unique. And the second thing that is great about it is it wasn't New Zealand rushing off and trying to legislate itself. And it wasn't New Zealand rushing off and trying to say, let's set up a global treaty and get 90 million countries to try and agree what to do here. It's like, let's be really clear about the narrowness of the content we're trying to deal with. 
let's understand that it's a, it's a process of dialogue and engagement with the companies to get them to enforce rules that they've already got. And if the, the kind of specificity of those aims has really helped the call have a chance of success. Now we'll get the report back in a couple of weeks and see how that success has gone. I assume that Mr Dorsey and the Prime Minister are talking about what Twitter's plans are in response to that. But popping in to see a, a leader for an hour at Parliament behind closed doors is one thing. He doesn't exactly open himself up to press scrutiny while he's here or hold a press conference, anything like that. Seems counter to the nature of the platforms they operate and the way they make their money. Uh, should they be saying more publicly and allowing us to talk and ask questions? If he's going to visit this country, talk to our leader, why shouldn't he talk to the press and the New Zealand public? I think the culture they've come from militates strongly against that. You know, It was all sort of, we're private, we'll do what we like, we'll control our message to the public all on our own terms. I think that's part of... Well, they know they're closer to something like a public utility, right? Like the power or the telephone or something like that. You know, part of it's about not thinking they have to solve all of these problems by themselves. Like, this is one of the dangers of the we'll do it ourselves, leave us alone culture. I'm I'm glad that Dorsey has come and talked to to our government. I hope the others do as well, because I think it probably helps them understand the scale of what happened. That was Internet NZ's Chief Executive Jordan Carter and Policy Advisor Nicola Brown, the author of To Block or Not to Block, Internet NZ's paper on internet blocking in New Zealand. And more of what they had to say about the pros and cons of online blocking and filtering and progress so far on the Christchurch call are in the online version of the story. You'll find that on the RNZ website or the MediaWatch section of the RNZ app. Welcome to Māori Language Week and this evening's bulletin. That was how TVNZ 6pm news bulletin began on Monday night. And later in the bulletin, political reporter Mikey Sherman presented an item entirely in te reo Māori. Kia kaha te reo Māori. He kaupapa e horapa haere nei puta i te motu. The Māori Language Commission's Nahiwi Apanui telling Mikey Schumann how Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori has grown from a week of protest to a national celebration. And it's a celebration that's being embraced right across the media. No mai hoki mai ki a korua. Welcome back, Stacey and Scotty. Tēnā koe, tēnā koutou e te iwi. That's a wonderful introduction. Kia ora, Catherine. <laughs> Kia ora. Uh, kei ta aha korua, he aha o mahi hau. What have you two been up to? What's the latest mahi? RNZ's Catherine Ryan speaking to Māori language advocates Stacey and Scotty Morrison. And Scotty went on to point out just how much demand there was within the media itself for language lessons. I think there's about two or three hundred people waiting at uh, TVNZ to come into the classes there. Um, I know Spark is keen. There's, uh, I was contacted by another media company this week and they were all ready to launch. They're just waiting to see when the next available opportunity is. So I'm looking at... Um, uh, my timetable to see where I can fit them in as well. Across on News Hub's AM show, Duncan Garner was talking to Steve Chadwick, the Mayor of New Zealand's first officially bilingual city, Rotorua. 
the nicest story I saw was when a kid ordered their McDonald's and um, and the assistant spoke to him in the rio and gave him the change. And I thought, this is amazing. Um, and for for us as locals and for visitors, uh, they feel it and hear it everywhere. Um, and, I, and I'm really thrilled with this. What's, Actually, what's, we've what's, got a bit of a shortage of tutors. Yeah, we have. That's, that's a problem. What's, what's Māori for Big Mac? What do we know? I don't know. <laughs> And after a quick lesson in te reo Māori from RNZ reporter Marnie Dunlop, Morning Report presenter Corin Dan summed up this year's Te Wiki o te reo like this. The language, keeping it strong, is the theme this year. And it's, it's, I've noticed a lot, of, a lot of media really getting into this, and it's, it's about giving it a go, isn't it? A lot of, a bit, Pākehā being encouraged to give it a go a lot more. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, I didn't point out, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fluent speaker. I'm not matatau. Um, so, you know, we're all in this together, and you've got to give it a go. Um, you know, it's the reo of this country. And so it's about strengthening and sharpening our reo this week and uh, um, we'll plenty more to come. <laughs> and the media's definitely come a long way since the first Māori language week back in 1975. But for fluent speakers of te reo Māori, it hasn't entirely been a story of progress. Here's how Radio New Zealand reported Bastian Point back in 1978. <laughs> Here is the Māori news read by Whaingata. O te reo i rangi tēne o Aotearoa e pānui atu nei ki ngā pari kārangaranga o te whenua. Tonight, Bastion Point. E aku rauranga tira mā, ane a tātou pitopito kōrero mō tēnei pō. There's been no similar reports in Te Reo Māori on the ongoing occupation of Ihu Mātau because RNZ scrapped its Te Reo Māori news bulletins in 1999. The move was criticised by the Māori Council and language advocates at the time who argued there was a huge symbolic value in having Māori language news bulletins on the national radio network. Two current affairs programmes in Te Reo Māori had also been canned earlier in the decade. Then, at the end of 2010, RNZ pulled its last Te Reo language programme, Hei Roro, a daily five-minute interview with a fluent speaker of Te Reo by journalist Ana Tapiata. As far back as 1942, the NZBC had a 10-minute news programme in Te Reo every day. Australia's ABC and Canada's CBC both run daily news bulletins in their various Indigenous languages. ABC News, Maryfield Station, only 500 kilometres, being Darwin That was an ABC News Bulletin in the Aboriginal language Yongumata, broadcast earlier this week. In its 2017 statement of intent, RNZ made it clear that its Māori language strategy was normalising te reo in its general content, but it also committed itself to hosting a daily te reo news bulletin produced by an outside Māori broadcaster on its website by June of 2018. That deadline has been and gone. RNZ's Māori strategy manager, Shannon Honui-Thompson, told Media Watch the plan has been put on hold until the government's Māori media sector review is completed. At this stage at RNZ, there are no plans for any te reo-only programming. Jeremy Rose reporting on how Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori has been embraced more enthusiastically than ever this year across the media, though Te Reo Māori is still not in our daily diet of news outside Māori broadcasters, with the exception of Te Kaareri on TVNZ1 every weekday at 4pm.
Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend, though we'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then again at the same time next Sunday here on Te Reo Irirangi o Aotearoa, RNZ National.